Welcome to Slay Back to the Future. This is a podcast exploring different concepts of the future, arguments for and against them, and the societal impacts of these arguments and these competing visions for the future. In this podcast, we're going to make this an extension of conversations that I have on my newsletter of the same name, interviews with people who I think are interesting and who may be interested in some of these topics, and other conversations that may not be best set for a newsletter context. You're probably, if you're listening to this right now, shortly after being published, you're probably getting it because you are a subscriber to Slayback Back to the Future, the newsletter. If you're not, I encourage you to go to Zach Slayback, that's Z-A-K-S-L-A-Y-B-A-C-K dot substack.com. That's where that newsletter is currently hosted. Sign up for that, totally free. You'll get uh, the occasional article on topics like the most recent one being the Nirvana fallacy. We're going to talk a little bit about Chesterton's fence. We're going to talk about things like what it means to have a competing vision of the future. You know, we'll probably talk about uh, voice and exit at some point. We'll talk about uh, what governance really looks like. We'll talk about what soft technologies look like and how a certain sense of disregard for soft technologies leads to social instability. That's a set of subjects that I'm really excited to dig into. Uh, I, I really do think there is truth to the title of Slay Back to the Future here uh, in the sense that there's a lot we can learn about from the past uh, about the future and about uh, building cohesive arguments for the future. So I encourage you, join us over there. Uh, if you are listening to this on your favorite podcast app, please go ahead and subscribe to it. And I look forward to having you as a listener and the reader here in the short future. So thanks for listening, and we'll hop into the first conversation now. The Nirvana Fallacy. This is a concept that I find particularly useful when you're making any kind of argument uh, against a, an alternative, usually an existing alternative. It doesn't have to be against the status quo, though, because you tend to find that when you're making an argument for something, people will happily try to poke holes in your argument for that thing. But they often do this by making certain assumptions about the counterfactual or certain assumptions about the status quo that aren't necessarily true. I am absolutely 100% in the camp that we need to be uh, strong in any of our arguments for uh, new alternatives or new paths for the future, whether that's personal paths, professional paths. Uh, family paths, political paths, or technological paths. But I think that too often people fall into this trap of making an unrealistic alternative that doesn't actually exist as a way of arguing against the vision for the future. So the example I give in the newsletter uh, where I talk about this is uh, anytime you're having a conversation around homeschooling, right? you'll often hear people say something like, well, aren't you concerned that the children won't be properly socialized? Or, oh, I want to send my children to public school because I think they'll be well socialized. Or, oh, I can't homeschool because I'm worried about socialization. There's an implicit assumption here that in the alternative to homeschooling that people, children, students, young adults are getting well socialized. 
in many, many cases, I'd say in the status quo, that this isn't based in reality. You know, most people, uh, school is the primary place where they're going to uh, interact with violence in their lifetimes. It's the primary place where a lot of young people are introduced to pornography. It's the primary place where people get this idea in their mind that their lives should be made up of primarily interacting with people of their own age and people who are within one or two zip codes of them because that's how most schooling tends to work. So there's this implicit assumption that the alternative to homeschooling is this nirvana world where, you know, kids are just well socialized and they go to school and they end up learning all these wonderful things that make them good citizens of society. There's an extension of this in the education vein when you make arguments uh, against certain forms of higher education, where you'll hear often from either liberal arts graduates themselves or from liberal arts professors that they believe that, well, you know, I, I think what you're talking about, that university education is too expensive and that it doesn't teach people skills that are actually practical in the real world. There might be something to that, but I think it's important that people become well-rounded. And again, Often what is going on here is that these people are creating a nirvana alternative to what you are arguing for that doesn't actually exist. There may be a few good university programs out there. St. John's is a good example. Uh, the mainline liberal arts schools outside the Philadelphia area, Swarthmore, for example, uh, is, is good at this as well, where there really are good liberal arts programs and people go primarily for those programs. However, in the vast majority of cases, when people take their liberal arts classes, it's mostly because it's something they have to do in order to get their degree. The, the way that you can imagine this is you can go and ask a college student, you know, what if you would pay the money you're paying and spend the time here that you're spending, but you don't end up getting this degree at the end of the day? You're learning what you're learning. You're learning how to become well-rounded, whatever. You're learning your liberal arts curriculum. Would you actually still come here? The vast majority are going to tell you no, and that's because they're primarily there to get a credential. So in this world, you have one option, which is uh, a new path forward in higher education. You know, This could be an argument for uh, – apprenticeships. It could be an argument for very, very focused university degrees, primarily on things that drive ROI. Uh, it could be an argument for gap year programs, any number of things, right? And then in the other hand, you have, well, I, I think that the current university system does a good job of creating well-rounded citizens through liberal arts programs. And again, that just isn't really borne out in the facts. You can look at citation uh, citations on this as well. Uh, Brian Kaplan's work in uh, the, ca ca the Case Against Education is good on this uh, subject that in general, even, even in STEM categories, people forget what they learn in the classroom unless they use it, right? So unless you're using your liberal arts curriculum that you learned in your required liberal arts classes in your undergraduate degree, you're probably forgetting most of what you learned there. So again, when you're making an argument here about the path forward in higher education, you have to make the distinction between what really exists and what could exist. So a couple other examples, you often hear tech journalists will uh, go and write these hit pieces on new technology companies uh, saying something like, 
that there might be crimes that are committed by Uber drivers or against Uber drivers. There could be scams that are listed on Airbnb. There could be unfettered conversations that are had on Clubhouse. With the the implication in all these cases being that there weren't crimes happening around taxi drivers to and by taxi drivers. There weren't crimes happening in hotel, scams happening out of hotels or out of Craigslist or all these other places. And that unfettered conversations didn't exist before Clubhouse. All these things actually were real and all these things are need to be brought forward in any of these conversations because otherwise you end up conceding to, in this case, maybe the the tech journalist with an agenda that, yeah, actually, you know, these technologies made things worse off. In in most cases, they didn't. (laughs) They may have actually concentrated a lot of crimes that, or crimes or crime think or whatever the complaint is that were happening across a lot of different places, which if you're trying to make the argument against the things that are going on, that actually might be better because enforcement gets easier. Right. Another example, uh, shortly after I published the article uh, version of this conversation on uh, Substack and then shared to Twitter, a friend of mine, Andrew Stover, uh, pointed out the an example with self-driving cars, right, that uh, he, he was making the point that there was a venture capitalist who was complaining that Tesla goes ahead and tests all of their self full self-driving mode on thousands of people who uh, don't understand the technology and don't understand really how much it's in beta. And Andrew was making the point that, you know, often what happens is we'll hold uh, private corporations to a much higher standard than we would hold uh, the government to. That The government would happily test something on 330 million people, uh, but a private corporation that tests something like full self-driving on a few thousand of its users or a few dozen thousands of its users is somehow far worse off. Uh, that that's often you know the case. That's actually where when I was first introduced to this concept of the Nirvana fallacy, it was in governance conversations that you will often hear uh, people paint these idealistic versions of either the state or of a specific policy outcome that they want. When in reality, that's not at all how the world works. Right. Uh, another example in the governance vein is. Uh, recently came across a political theory book where the author was trying to make the argument that there are certain kinds of legitimate and illegitimate governance. And in his argumentation, it seemed like the idea of legitimate governance really just comes down to whoever has the more formal form of of a state behind it, right? Uh, so it wasn't quite – there's this idea from Carl Weber that, that – um, a state is an entity that has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force over a certain region, right? And he wasn't quite making that argument. It was more that uh, legitimacy comes from formal legitimacy, so the process through which one goes in order to uh, make the claim of legitimacy. And he gave some examples of what he thought were illegitimate governance, uh, one being Islamic ghettos in France where – there will be essentially gang rule uh, in inside the ghetto and that the French state can't actually enforce its laws. Now, I, I find this an interesting example because he's making a case that a certain form of governance is illegitimate without being able to point to the legitimate form of the French state. Like what would the French state actually look like if it had been legitimately operating inside this region? He has painted a nirvana 
picture of what the French state could could be or would be without actually painting the picture of what it realistically is as an alternative to the governance within these French ghettos. So I find the Nirvana fallacy a useful way of thinking about argumentation for and against different options. I think it's if you're somebody who's regularly making the case for uh, new visions, whether that's you know personal, political, familial, uh, cr- uh, professional, or technological, you need to be aware of this kind of sleight of hand that will happen when people are talking about uh, arguments for and against what you might be proposing. Of course, the pendulum can swing the other way too, where the people who are making the argument for something like, say, a new education alternative uh, will paint their vision as unrealistically optimistic, right? And, and I don't spend a lot of time talking about that side of the nirvana fallacy because I quite frankly think we have a pessimism bias in, in modern America and in the West and in our conversations around technology in general. It's easy to poke holes in new ideas. It's easy to be somebody in the, in the peanut stands who's saying like, well, you know, here's all these reasons that won't work. So I'm not particularly interested in spending too much time talking about that. I think that if you're making a form of argument uh, for a, a new path forward, yes, you need to be realistic about the, the path you're presenting. But simultaneously, your interlocutors need to be realistic about what you are arguing against, that we don't exist in a uh, nirvana world where the counterfactual to the proposed alternative is somehow far, far better off. So hopefully that's helpful. You can use that in your conversations going forward. You can use that in your arguments going forward. And feel free to reach out to me. I'm uh, at Z Slayback on Twitter. Happy to continue this conversation there.